Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. It's not just all English Americans who are always having a fight with the British. It's, it's a very uh, international team of people who already lived here. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Kim Burdick discussing the prominent French diplomats and officers that traveled through the state of Delaware. And she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Kim Burdick, and she'll be discussing the unique French legacy of the state of Delaware. Kim has been on the show a few different times. She's the resident Delaware expert here at the Journal of the American Revolution. And her her new article doesn't let us down. It's an examination of the unique European history of Delaware, as well as some of the prominent characters that moved through it on their way to pretty serious events. The Marquis de Lafayette amongst them. And of course, uh, it was sort of a superhighway, if you would, on the way to Yorktown. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Kim Burdick. Kim Burdick, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. Kim, remind us about your background. Oh, well, I'm, I'm from, oh, there goes the bird on the clock. <laughs> I'm, I'm from upstate New York, north of Binghamton, with all um, New England ancestors who, many of them, most of them, fought in the Revolutionary War. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, first, the first country I knew about was France when I was a kid. My grandfather and his brother both were in France in World War One, and after um, after the war, my grandfather came home. His brother stayed over there and was married to a French woman and had five kids. So when I was eight, one of his kids who was ten years older than I am came over. And so my whole life has been, you know, invested in Cousin John. <laughs> so I, I've always been interested in, in anything to do with France and America. Talk about the many Europeans that called Delaware home before the revolution. Well, Delaware was um, actually a very cosmopolitan state from the 1600s on settled by Swedes and Finns and Dutch and French Huguenots long before it was English. Uh, William Penn became uh, in, char- in charge of what we call Delaware, but they call it Pennsylvania, right? So we were the lower three counties of Pennsylvania, and he was a newcomer to us because the Dutch and Swedes are here in the 1630s, and William Penn arrived in 1682, so... That, that's part of it. But when they were supposed to uh, have local representatives sign the Declaration of Independence, the people in the lower three counties met in historic Newcastle, and they uh, 
they decided they were not only going to separate themselves from Britain, and most of them being Dutch and Swedes and a few ordinary Presbyterians. I can sell these bad things because I'm all of the above, you know. But, <laughs> but anyways, um, they decided they would also separate from Pennsylvania. By that time, it was William Penn's grandson, John Penn, and they really didn't like John Penn. So <clears throat> they were signing among themselves, not only to sign the Declaration of Independence, but also that they would separate from Pennsylvania and thereby become the first state. Discuss Delaware's geographic importance in relation to Philadelphia, as well as other population centers. Well, one of the things, where I came from, you know, Delaware is really little. It's the size of one 4-H district in upstate New York. So to me, it just seems... Funny, it could be a state, but three counties, uh, Newcastle, Kent, and Sussex County, but they all follow the Delaware River. And if you went upstream from the Delaware River, you'd come into the Hudson River. So the Dutch used to call it the North River and the South River. So it's uh, the borderline is uh, directly across the river from New Jersey, only a few miles upstream from Philadelphia and really close to to Maryland in the Chesapeake Bay, and at the bottom of the Delmarva Peninsula is Virginia. So it's uh, um, always been a trading route. There's still a lot of ships out there. But also, when people are traveling, a lot of people don't know where Delaware is. In fact, it might have been your own article talking about the Allegheny Mountains in the Delaware, and I'm saying, wow, where is that? <laughs> but that's kind of how... People react. When I said we were moving to Delaware, everybody in New York State said, what, you mean Delaware County? (laughs) It's not a a known place, really. When I was a little kid and we had Mrs. Clinton was our fourth or fifth grade teacher, and she said, and today we'll learn about the mid-Atlantic states, and we're one of them. And all the kids in the whole class, we all had New England ancestors, and we all said, no, we're not. We're New Englanders. (laughs) So here was this poor lady, very brilliant lady, and she's listening to 25 uh, fourth graders all saying, no, we're not. We're from New England. (laughs) So it's kind of an unknown place. And it's even in Philadelphia, we used to live at one point near Valley Forge, and People um, really, they only came down here because it was close to Longwood Gardens or to um, to get tax-free shopping, and they would come and buy a freezer or something for no taxes. But they never came down here. When they went to the beach, they went to the New Jersey shore on the opposite side. So it's not a, a known place. It's a place you pass through to get from point A to point B, from Philadelphia to New York or something. So it's... Um, it's a really cool place. I like it, but there's a lot of um, people that don't know where we are. How was Delaware described during the 18th century? Mostly they said how pretty it was. <clears throat> but, you know, when we think about the Revolutionary War, we just assume it's battles, battles, battles. And, in fact, most of it, they're walking, particularly with the French uh, in the Yorktown campaign, they're marching from Rhode Island all the way to Virginia and then to South Carolina. So they're not having battles here. There was a battle, Battle of Cooch's Bridge, on September 3rd, 1777 in the Philadelphia campaign. But then nothing until uh, 1781 when they all start trooping down from Rhode Island and going through 
upstate New York and New Jersey and all the way down to Virginia. And so they're not having a fight. They're mostly like soldiers are usually pretty young people, you know. And so they are out there just admiring the landscape, kind of. And they talk about, you know, what they ate and how pretty the girls were and all this kind of stuff. So it's it's fun to read it because they're talking about it's a beautiful place and blah, blah, blah. And somebody is sent by Rochambeau back from Yorktown to go um, to Philadelphia to give a message. And he's talking about coming through Dover where the houses were wood and nicely painted. So it's it's interesting to me to see how looking at it with fresh eyes they're talking about the river and the views of the houses and one long brick road in Wilmington and these kind of things they're they're really almost like the kind of um i don't know almost like tour guides or tra- tra- travel agents or something like that selling the place because they just thought it was pretty why is there so much activity during the war in that particular region kim it's because we're we're the the link um, along the shore. We're we're the landline that goes from Philadelphia to Maryland and Virginia, and so it's the same as today. Except now you're taking I ninety five or Route one or something like that. But it's it's a cross a pass through place a cross crossroads. I don't know what you call it, but it's the link between Philadelphia and the rest of the world. And so today it's full of tourists. And at night, between 3 in the afternoon and 6 p.m., it's packed with uh, workers because a lot of people who work in Philadelphia live down here. People that work down here may live in Philadelphia or Baltimore. So it's it's hard to get through this state in the afternoon because it's so jam-packed with people going from point A to point B. You write about the Marquis de Lafayette in your article. What did he experience there? Mm-hmm. Well, he he was pretty neat. Actually, here at the Hale Burns house, um, he um, turned 20 years old. He hadn't fought yet. You know, he came to America, and he said he wanted to volunteer. And because he was uh, a very, he was actually the wealthiest dwarf in, in France. And so he spent his own money. He had a ship built, and he came over here. And then um, when he went to Philadelphia, Ben Franklin said, you have to take good care of this kid because it'll get us in trouble with France if you don't. So George Washington became kind of an adopted father. His Lafayette's own father had died when he was a little kid in a different war. <clears throat> so he um, and Washington became very close in a father-son relationship. So Franklin told Washington to basically to babysit this expensive French kid. And so he did. So his one of his first adventures in America was to come to Delaware. And on the borderline between Delaware and Maryland, which today is just a, a straight line, there's a place called Iron Hill near Cooch's Bridge. <clears throat> and there are descriptions of um, Washington and Lafayette up there on Iron Hill looking down the hill to the head of Elk, and it's like Elkton, Maryland is there. Uh, can you hear? There's a lawnmower out there. But anyways, the um, the um, first thing he did was to 
look down the hill with Washington and some of these other important Americans to spy on the British, what they're doing as they're landing at Head of Elk. And then after that, he wasn't part of the Battle of Cooch's Bridge, which was a few days after that. He was over in Wilmington, a place where they had parked him. But on September 3rd was Battle of Cooch's Bridge. September 6th was his 20th birthday, and he was allowed to be part of a planning session of how the Americans would protect Philadelphia. <clears throat> so this battle, a uh, council of war was right here at Hale Burns House. So we still, every September, celebrate Lafayette's 20th birthday. So it's kind of fun, but we bring in all kinds of, of speakers and scholars about Lafayette. So then after that, uh, September 11th was the Battle of Brandywine up in Chadsford, Pennsylvania, not too many miles north of here. So he went up there and he fought, and he got shot in the leg. And then that winter was the the winter of Valley Forge, and you know all about that. But later on, when he was in his 60s, he came back uh, for his triumphal return in 1824, and a lady came to Major Jaquette and asked, please, could I be reintroduced to Lafayette in this fancy reception at the old courthouse, which is now still available and re- restored as a museum in Wilmington. Well, Major Jaquette asked this haggy old lady, why? And she said, well, she was about the same age as Lafayette. And during the Battle of Brandywine, she had removed the bullet from this leg and she had worn it around her neck in a little bag her whole life, and she still had it. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm presuming that he did get to meet her because he was very friendly, and he, he recognized people that he had known all those years before. But that that lady's name was Belle McCluskey, and, and just the fact we still know what her name was, I think, indicates something about it. So then he did that, and then later as their, oh, the French are coming, in the 1780s for the Yorktown campaign, Washington sent Lafayette ahead of the others to go down to Virginia and see what was going on. So he's once again passing through here um, where he had been when he was 20. <clears throat> and he's getting all kinds of equipment and um, help both from Delawareans and from people in Maryland to get cannons and junk like that to take take south with him. So that was the second time he was down here. And then the third time was this triumphal return we were talking about in 1824. So he he seemed to really be a friendly kid. He liked people, and he seemed to recognize ones that he had met before pretty easily. Which other Frenchmen moved through the region? Oh, all of them, really. I love them all. But one of them um, that interested me, of course, was the Dupont. And that's an important thing because the Dupont were part of the um, the French soldiers who came here, but they're not the Duponts that Delaware is so famous for. So they're two different families. And the spelling of the Wilmington Dupont <laughs> is, to, is of the bridge. And Dupont, who was the French... Uh, soldier uh, was in charge of a bunch of soldiers. His name means two bridges, and they're from different parts of France, but here's the, we've got Dupont and Dupont. <laughs> two, two spellings and, and two, 
two different parts of France coming here. But that guy took careful um, records. And one thing I especially love about this project is that there's so many letters and diaries and journals that still exist. So you can easily get into the primary documents and see what people were experiencing and what they said and what they thought, even what they ate. It's, it's kind of neat. But there's a, a whole bunch of other ones. Um, one of them was um, De Fleury, who came around the same time that Lafayette did, <clears throat> and he he was he was here. And there's uh, awards that are given in his name by an engineering group. Um, the other one that was pretty young was uh, Labaudier, and Norm Desmaris up in Rhode Island just translated his his work, but um, he was actually Rochambeau's very young uh, cousin, and he was also his aide-de-camp. So when he was um, 22, he he was here, and he was writing about um, what they did and how much he liked it and how friendly the people were here. So it's fun to read all of these primary documents and see what they're doing. And then, of course, Lausanne, because they spent the winter here. They were the ones, uh, I don't know, you may remember, when they were leaving Brittany, they had to leave their horses, but that's what they were. They were they were horsemen. So when they came to New England, they spent the winter in Connecticut while the rest of them were over the border in Rhode Island. Down here, they spent the winter here. And one of them, Capel, is actually buried at Old Swedes Church in Wilmington because he was... Um, I guess because he fell in love, I don't know, but he decided not to go home, and he became a founder of the Delaware Medical Association. Where does the DuPont family factor into this story? Well, a little bit, I think. One of the things is the French Revolution had broken out by the time they came over here, and they had tried to kind of keep their heads down, but it one of them, Victor Dupont, had been part of a, um, I don't know, a coalition of, of people. And he knew because of Franklin having been in France and so forth, he, he knew Lafayette and he knew Ben Franklin and he knew a bunch of other people. So they were um, interested. And most of the gunpowder in the Revolutionary War came from the from France, and so when they came over, that's what they did. They started a gunpowder factory, so it wouldn't have been in time for the Revolutionary War, but they had gunpowder by 1812. So so they came, and one of the street where um, Lausanne's Legion spent the winter is actually called French Street. So there were some that stayed here, along with some Hessians. They stayed after the war, and so there are already French people in this area and they knew there was a need for gunpowder so they came and they started um, what we call Hagley today Eleutherian Mills was named for one of their ancestors so it's kind of I don't know like a magnet but they were trying to get out of um, France because their their father who was known not to be in uh, (laughs) I don't know what French patriot they they were afraid the king was going to behead him, and so they came over. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, one thing is that it's not just all English Americans who are always having a fight with the British. It's, it's a very uh, 
international team of people who already lived here, but also that there was help from France and also help from Spain in terms of, of money. But it's it's a more uh, international kind of a battle than we would have thought. And also that not everybody that lived here really wanted to fight. They, you know, there were a lot of people who were not English. They didn't really care. <laughs> so it, it's a... Uh, um, it's it's a fun war to look at because it's more more complex and more complicated than we thought. But I I just I don't know I I like it because it's the things that these guys did were just walking through here and and keeping track of what stuff looked like and what happened to them. But it's um it's important to know that that thing that um, John Adams said about the French Revolution a third a third and a third was you know, a third didn't want to fight, a third were apathetic, and a third were gung-ho. And it was true of this war, too. And so this part where you're passing through these three counties, it was exactly the same. A third of them really didn't want anything to do with it because there was nothing to do with their ancestry. A third of them were either Anglican or Quaker. And then the other third, a lot of Presbyterians had, had arrived and recent years, and they didn't like England anyways because they were ripped off by England at home. So third, a third, a third, it's not just French Revolution, but it's also this revolution, and I think that's important to keep in mind. Kim Burdick, thanks again. Thank you, Brady. Bye-bye. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.